or we'll just start now. Before we start, though, and before I do introductions, um, Stuart, I wanted you to play that. If you could, we're going to start with a clip from the podcast. This season on Panic Button, the story of April Rose Wilkins. In a life and death altercation with Terry in April of 1998, she shoots him eight times when he was lunging at her. I knew that I was going to die. They're telling the full story of the relationship between April Wilkins and Terry Carlton for the first time ever. We'll be talking about the history of their relationship, the trial, what went wrong on appeal, facts the jury never got to hear, and evidence that was never introduced at trial. What happened here? That's all I kept saying. How could this happen? I just couldn't, you couldn't, you know, I couldn't get over it. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. It didn't, I don't want to ever again. I'm April Wilkins, and I am Oklahoma Department of Corrections, inmate number 282399. What if no one was coming to save you? Could you take the life of your abuser? Could the system forgive you? Panic button, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Thank you all for coming out tonight. My name is Apollonia, and I am one of the many people involved with the Center for Public Secrets. The Center for Public Secrets is an institution that explores the buried and neglected histories of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and beyond. We are able to share these hidden stories because we are independently run, free and unmuzzled by Tulsa's philanthropic industrial complex. If you'd like to support us, please go buy yourself a beer or buy some of our merch. Center for Public Secrets is located on the Muscogee Reservation, my tribe's reservation. Specifically, this tract of land that we are on right now was once the allotment land of Alvin T. Hodge. He was a Creek man who was a judge for Creek Nation, and he's actually buried just across the street at Oaklawn Cemetery, just to give that little bit of history here. So let me introduce you to our panelists. We have Leslie Briggs. Leslie Briggs is a civil and immigrant rights attorney. She is the supervising attorney for the YWCA Tulsa Legal Services Program, where she helps oversee a dedicated team providing critical immigration services to more than 3,000 immigrants in the Tulsa area. She is the co-host and co-producer of the new podcast, Panic Button, the April Wilkins case, which tells the story of a criminalized survivor convicted in Tulsa County in 1999. We have Colleen McCarty, who is an attorney and the founding executive director of the Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. She has worked on criminal justice reform legislation with Oklahoma legislators across the rotunda for the past three years. She is the co-host and co-producer of Panic Button. We have Molly Bryant. Molly Bryan is a social worker and domestic violence advocate. She is the former underserved outreach advocate for the domestic violence intervention services in Tulsa. Currently, Molly is the director of case management for refugee services at YWCA Tulsa. Molly has become an advocate for communities who are often overlooked and underserved by traditional models of victim services. She's also a member of the Cherokee Nation. And we have Amanda Ross. Amanda Ross is the niece and main family contact for April Wilkins. She has lived in Tulsa for over 10 years. Along with other advocates for April, she runs the social media and blog for Free April Wilkins. 
She helped April with her latest parole attempt this year, which was unsuccessful. Amanda's childhood friend, local artist Ashlyn Faulkner, also helps advocate. She's back there. <laughs> so I'd like to begin by asking some questions here to Leslie and Colleen. How did this podcast begin and what attracted you to this case in particular? Colleen. Well, I uh, was asked to found a legal justice center in March of this year, uh, Oklahoma Appleseed. And as soon as it became public that we were doing this, I got a phone call from my friend Leslie. We went to law school together. We had never really worked on any cases together, but I just always admired her for her dedication to public interest law. And she called me and she said, hey, I don't know what Appleseed does, but maybe you want to do this. <laughs> I have this crazy case. Um, I've been approached by some advocates, Amanda and Ashlyn, to look into. And every time I look at this case, it just bothers me more and more. And I wonder if it's something that Appleseed would take on. So that's kind of how we started looking at the case. And then, and then Colleen texted me and said, let's do a podcast. <laughs> and then we were like, we're going to do a podcast. How do you do a podcast? Yeah. No, but it was really, truly just like, um, this story is very, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that this story is very uh, complex, and there are a lot of details that you have to understand to understand the full context of what happened. So it can't be told in a one-off, and so that's why we decided to use podcasts as the medium. So... Before we start talking in depth about this podcast and the story of April Wilkins, there are a number of cast of characters that we need to kind of run through and explain who's who. Um, so we have April Wilkins, of course. We have Terry Carlton. And at the time, Tulsa County DA Tim Harris and Rebecca Brett Nightingale. Could you two please explain who's who and involved in this podcast and the story? Sure. So um, Terry Carlton and April Wilkins were in an intimate relationship. Um, as you know, probably, she ended up in self-defense taking his life on April 28th, 1998, um, which is where it becomes a legal issue and goes to the district attorney's office for prosecution. At that time, it was prosecuted by our elected district attorney, Tim Harris, and one of his assistant district attorneys, Rebecca Nightingale. Um, district Attorney Harris was our district attorney in Tulsa County until 2014 when he decided not to run again. Um, and then Nightingale got elected to judge. She is still on the bench now. She was the presiding judge of Tulsa County for several years. Now she's not anymore. But um, they both together were like the prosecution team um, of the case. Anything you want to add? Nope, that's a good summary. I'd like to add something that I found out while researching um, this trial and preparing for this event is that Tim Harris got his law degree from ORU, which I didn't know they had. I did not know that. That law school lasted about five years. It was seven. Seven. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm stunned. So yeah, um, Tim Harris got a law degree from ORU from a law program they had that lasted for seven years and is now defunct. He is currently, however, the chief counsel for Tulsa County Sheriff's Office. So, um, before... <laughs> no, I just have no comments We're gonna on... get there, yeah. okay? <laughs> We're gonna get there. It's gonna get spicy. <laughs> and so... Oh, yeah, I'd like to actually, before we go further, could you play the clip? 
And I think it's such a cute clip when I was listening to this earlier of like the two of them. Okay, it's from recording now. Give me some loose thoughts. Sweet. We're on our way to Mabel Bassett Correctional Center to see April Rose Wilkins for the very first time. Very first time. We've been reading her trial transcripts for two weeks. Two weeks. A little bit longer because we had some of the materials for about a month, I guess. Yeah, heavy two weeks. But, you know, reviewing stuff for like six weeks maybe. Yeah. And yeah. we were just saying to ourselves, <laughs> what how? The fuck? <laughs> what the actual fuck? Yeah. How does something like this happen? Yeah, just things that don't make a lot of sense. And if the sound sucks on this recording, it's because it's raining and we're on the highway. <laughs> we're riffing. And we're so. also just like getting a feel for <laughs> how you make a podcast. Right. So yeah. thanks for listening. <laughs> Hi, good morning. We have an appointment at 11 a.m. with April Wilkins, who are two attorneys that are working with her. My heart is pounding. I'm like a little nervous. I know, I hate this part with the gates. I hate it. It's terrifying. So we're surrounded by razor wire. There's a two gate situation here. So you go in one gate, they shut it. You go in another gate. They shut that. <laughs> then you go in a door to an office area. Okay, they opened the first gate. That feels like a good sign. <laughs> we did make an appointment. We did make an appointment. We got approved. That's right. Did make an appointment. There's a, oh, look, they built this little fountain out here. The, the, the people who are incarcerated built that fountain. Isn't that really? lovely? They made a little garden. That's a little jarringly out of place. I know, kind of peaceful out here in this courtyard. Yeah. Interesting. Hello. Hi. 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 And I need uh, your shoes. Oh, my shoes too. I was totally barefoot for this section. That was uncomfortable in the prison lobby. Oh, yeah. They said we're going to get right after Thank you. Thank you. Double doors. Yeah, we made it through security. Now we're just stuck in a tiny room <laughs> between two long doors. There we go. Hi. Uh, April Wilkins. I'm really hoping this little recorder holds up. I believe in you. I believe in you, too. Like, you've got to have a good um, range on you. The voice tracer. Think about what our phones are capable of picking up, and that's not even their main function. Yeah. This is the... This is its only job. This is your only job. I have one job. <laughs> Do it well. Do you think these are mics, or is that playback? I don't know where the mics are. Oh, my God! Hi! Hi! 
Can we oh. hug? I don't know, but I'm going to hug you. Oh, thank you. I saw you, I saw you from my room walking. Oh, Emily and Miss Leslie. Oh, wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to meet you. We're so, I feel really honored to be Chat with me today. Oh my gosh, that makes me. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. Once I saw you make it in, I was like, okay, there is. There is. Oh my gosh, and I just got a message from Amanda this morning. Yeah. She said exactly what I feel. She said, I feel so lucky to have them, and I feel blessed because you don't believe like I know it's all blessings, you know. And she said uh, that it just want to cry. Okay. <laughs> we're so yeah, well. yeah. very happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to my humble abode. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Thanks yeah. for hosting. And that's how you get started in the podcast business. <laughs> Amanda, that's your auntie in that recording. That was their first time visiting her. Listening to that, how does that make you feel? What emotions does that bring up? trying not to cry. <laughs> Don't cry but, yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the podcast was beyond our wildest dreams. It was something that, like, Ashlyn had suggested. But I'm like, I cannot do a podcast. I don't have time. You know, but but all of the social media stuff that we had been doing, that was also Ashlyn. And um, it wasn't really going very far. And so this has been beyond my wildest dreams. So I really am grateful to, to you both. For Colleen and Leslie, could you kind of give us, for people that may not be as familiar with this case, kind of like a rough top hits chronological timeline of April Wilkins and who Terry Carlton was, how they met and what their relationship was like and the events leading up to her eventually defending herself and shooting him. That is a tall order, but um, I'll start, I'll, I'll do the lead in. Um, they met at the dealership, at the Don Carlton dealership here in town. So if you are from Tulsa, you're probably very familiar with that dealership. Um, Terry, at the time, I think, was working at the dealership, and he sort of pursued her pretty actively, and they developed a relationship that kind of took off like a rocket. Within three months, they were engaged. Within six months, he had begun physically abusing her. Um, yeah, so that was... In the fall of 95, when they met, um, actually, she told me when I saw her this week uh, that when she visited him at his house for the first time, Melinda Wallace's stuff was still there. Like, she was living there even when he started to see her. So, um, she's, he said that, sorry, she said that he mailed everything back to her in California that week after she went over there for drinks for the first time. And so you can see how he was kind of like hopping from relationship to relationship, but um, through 96 and 97, it just ended up sort of becoming this escalation of cycles of abuse. And every time that he wasn't sort of held accountable in whatever way you think that that needed to happen, um, it sort of ended up getting worse and worse. Uh, there, you know, it escalated to stalking, escalated to surveilling her in her house, putting recording devices, breaking in, um, raping, all of those things that we talk about on the podcast. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, it sort of follows a path of like a traditional domestic violence relationship, except this is one where the, the person has a lot of money and where, you know, 
Um, he was taking her on a lot of lavish trips. There were a lot of vacations, and that was sort of how I think he would draw her back in. But also, she paid for some of the vacations herself because she had a job and she was sustaining herself too. And so it's almost like this microcosm of a domestic violence relationship that plays out on like the world stage. Right, yeah. At trial, it's really painted like she was a gold digger and she was um, being whisked around the world by the son of a millionaire. When she, she paid for them to go to the the Bahamas like multiple times she mm -hmm. owned her own business she was extremely successful she was renovating a home in Brookside like none of that came out at trial and the one detail I'll add to that we didn't really get to talk about much in the podcast but that like Terry was pretty much back in the 90s of course Radio Shack was like a big deal and he was really making use of Radio Shack the man had a police scanner the man had bugged her home he had really like these were just like things that he could go and purchase from a shop and was using them to torment her. That's not a blast on Radio Shack, but it's just the sign of the times. Mm -hmm. Like now, we see these kinds of things playing out with cell phones and people recording each other on phones or recording each other on like their devices, but this is sort of like what they had um, back then. And you even hear one phone call that they have on the podcast between the two of them. It's just the only recording that we know of right now that has his voice still on it, but you hear sort of the, how their dynamic played out between the two of them, um, and it's just a lot of a lot of emotional manipulation on top of um, the physical stuff. Molly, um, I'd like you to answer a few questions as well. So, with your experience and your background as a social worker. Could you please explain to us what the definition of domestic violence is and the various forms that it takes? Yeah, so domestic violence is a pattern of abusive behaviors. It's a pattern of abusive behaviors um, focused on power and control. So um, it is not often, it is not a one-off thing, um, and it is much, it goes much deeper and further than physical abuse. So we know like as a society, when people think about domestic violence, they often think of like a woman with a black eye. And while that is, is the case for a lot of people, um, a lot of survivors of domestic violence are never hit physically um, and never experience any type of physical abuse. Uh, some of it is emotional or psychological abuse, which is incredibly deep, um, really messes with your psyche um, so that can look like um, someone telling you you're worthless, that no one's going to believe you, um, that you can't survive without them. Um, it can look like financial abuse. So financial abuse is also incredibly powerful in our society. So if you don't have access to finances, you often don't have access to any type of freedom. So um, that can look like forcing you to stay home and take care of the kids, not allowing you to work, um, forcing your paycheck to go into, uh, be direct deposit into an account that either you don't have access to or that you get in trouble if you use. Um, religious abuse, that's pretty heavy here in Oklahoma. Um, so that can look like belittling your belief system, forcing you to go to a certain place of worship, keeping you from that, using biblical texts to tell you that you should be submissive. Um, 
And then, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds, but reproductive is another huge one. So for women in particular, for people who can get pregnant, um, reproductive abuse keeps people in abusive relationships. So it's hiding birth control, um, removing a condom without someone knowing, uh, forcing you to give birth, all of that. And that we know ties into everything else, right? That's emotional and financial and everything else, um, but it's super powerful. And then one that often gets not talked about is gaslighting. So that's a form of emotional abuse, but whenever someone tells you that your experience, that it's when they're telling you that your reality is not real. So they may be saying, no, no, no. Whenever I did that, you were drunk. You just didn't understand what was going on. Or no, I think you're misreading that. Um, and so it's again, making you doubt yourself as a survivor um, and say, okay, well, yeah, maybe I am worthless and maybe this isn't happening and I'm not smart enough to know what abuse is and abusers will often play on that. So there's like, I mean, you could go on and on. Any part of your life can be manipulated to be a form of, of abuse. Another question I had for you, I was wondering about, um, I know that you are Cherokee, and enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation, and I was wondering if that also informs the work that you do. Yeah. Um, so I think all we bring all of our identities into the work that we do. Um, being a Native woman, we know statistics for um, domestic violence and sexual assault, sexual violence in general, are exponentially higher for our community. Um, and so because of that, my, I can count back generations of survivors in my family who have experienced this. Um, it's pretty deep, but also I think um, an important thing to note is um, our Cherokee and traditional cultures have a very different view of holding people accountable, of accessing what we, like our traditional legal system. Um, so the way that I view a lot of the work that's done is through the lens of um, healing instead of just punishment. Um, yeah, I don't know if that fully answers it, but. <laughs> it does. Here in Oklahoma, we have a lot of values that we've been surrounded by, grown up with, and those values tend to revolve around God, freedom, guns, and football. The right to defend yourself and not have the government interfere with your business. Do you think those, this is for anybody on the panel, um, do you think those values are diffused equally to Oklahoma women? No. no. <laughs> No. <laughs> My brother in Christ, as Leslie likes to say. Listen, can we talk, Kyle Rittenhouse, is it too early for that? Do people need a few more drinks? Like, I mean, I know he's not from Oklahoma, but let's talk about what that kid got up to. The fact that, like, one of the individuals that he shot and killed, he knew was unarmed. One of the individuals threw a plastic bag at him. Um, and, you know, he was acquitted. Now... Political feelings aside, that the technical legal victory on that was always probably going to be hard. Like, just from the matter of like looking at self-defense. Like, self-defense should be a robust and broadly interpreted defense for people. It's supposed to be about your reasonable fear. 
we know, I mean, we know that didn't happen for April whatsoever. I mean, that de the, the defense just wasn't presented in a way that the jury could understand, and there were a nu numerous things that happened in that trial. I could talk ad nauseum about the tropes that we see for women. And in general, in, my last comment will be that, that society in general tends to disbelieve the experiences of women. You can see that play out in the trial as well. Yeah, I mean, you, so you said freedom, God, football, and guns. Those are the four, like the holy trinity, but I guess the holy quad, quadrity. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, I think that we would like to think so. But we see in situations like this where we know if, we know like in our, whole, in our whole souls that if April was a man, would not have been charged with a crime to begin with, would just not have. Like handcuffed, being told she was gonna be raped up the ass, being told she was, after being already raped one time, um, handcuffed in the front. So like what else needs to happen for somebody to feel like they're in threat of their life? I don't know. I don't know what else would need to happen to feel afraid for your life in this situation. So like, no to the guns and no to the freedom, obviously, because they kind of go together, I think. But there's so much more to say, and I know you have more questions, but no. <laughs> Is now a good time to talk about my family? <laughs> like, yeah, you can go ahead. I did yeah. want, actually want to ask one more question okay. uh, to the panel. Oh, okay. We'll get to that next, though. Um, in Oklahoma, we have the Stand Your Ground law. Could you please talk a little bit about that and why that law did not work for April? So Stand Your Ground is essentially a legal defense for anybody who has someone in there. It's like the castle doctrine is another word for it. It's what, it's what we call when someone's in your house um, and they're threatening you or breaking in or committing a burglary, you, you can shoot them. Um, and the idea that you are in fear of your life is, is, is like baked in, sort of. Like it's a rebuttable presumption that you are in fear of your life if someone is in your house. So it basically takes away one of the elements that you have to prove of self-defense if they've been in your house and robbing you. We, that, that should explain the answer to number two, which is that she wasn't in her own house. If he had come into her house, then it probably would have been a stronger defense, but the fact that she was there at his house um, kind of kills the castle doctrine for her. Uh, but still, in a traditional self-defense situation where you don't have the castle doctrine, you still have you still have a right to common law self-defense, which is, you know, I, I don't know if I can rattle off all the elements because I didn't look at that, but basically, you are not the aggressor, you're in imminent fear of your life. Eminence means it's happening right now and you don't have a chance to escape. Um, and you respond with reasonable force. Yeah, and I mean, this, the stand your ground laws, I have questions about it as well, because I know, I think even like in Florida, I don't know about here, I'm not a stand your ground expert, um, but in Florida, like you don't even have to be in your house. Like you can be in public and you have no duty to retreat. That's kind of- That was um, the George Zimmerman case. Was, mm -hmm. was, yeah, George Zimmerman, right, with Tra uh, Trayvon Martin, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's it's like that in Oklahoma, and I also don't know the history of the stand your ground law here when it was in, like when it was passed in the legislature. I don't know maybe if it what, I don't know if it was in effect at that time, but um, probably the biggest thing is that nobody believed April. It just didn't matter. Her, they didn't believe her, like full stop. And so stand your ground, self defense, nothing was was going to get her out of this. 
really. Um, so just around like women being believed um, and also like who gets charged, like are women disproportionately charged for these sort of things. I also think it's important to note, so I used to work in the Tulsa County Jail as an advocate for survivors. Um, and I watched over the years the people who were typically charged with this sort of thing were like, we would think, oh, that's self-defense. The people who were charged and convicted were always um, either people with substance use issues or women of color. Almost always women of color except for one instance. Um, and I also saw instances where it was the same scenario, but it was um, a very beautiful young white woman who did the same thing and was never convicted, never made it even to trial. The district attorney said no. Um, and so I think recognizing that it's not just the difference between men and women being convicted, but women with different identities that are that are making people not believe them, right? Because of the way they dress or their hair, or the way they look. Some of these photographs on the back wall, um, I believe are never before seen photographs from the trial exhibitions. Could all of you kind of walk us through what's going on in some of these photographs? Yeah, we can, we can start down here. You never saw that. I've never seen the first one before today. Yeah, so State introduced that first picture. That was an early picture of, Ter of Terry and April together in their early relationship. Um, this second one is from, you can see it's from the date of the murder uh, where they were, was, I think it was part of her SANE exam. They were taking photos. That was introduced by the defense. Um, and then this is introduced by the defense. It was a picture of April's French doors. We talk about those on the podcast. Basically, those are the back doors that he would come in the back gate and break into all the time. And you can see a picture. If you come up close after we're done, you can see. But there's no handle on the door anymore because it's been broken off so, so many times. Um, one of the things she testified to was that she put a bungee cord around the inside of the handles um, so that he wouldn't be able to get in because there was no more doorknob anymore, so she couldn't lock it. Um, but then he broke through that, and it, like, came so hard that the doorknob inside flew off and, like, into the house. So um, that was introduced by the defense. And then, Leslie, do you know? Yeah, I wanted to add one other thing on the French doors is that we, I think we mentioned this on the podcast, but I just want to, like, highlight it, is that he broke in so many times. I mean, she's trying to, like bungee cord this shut and like she eventually starts putting luggage and boxes of books in front of these doors and then he starts coming in the front he gets a he has a key made to her house at some point and starts breaking in the front um the interior bedroom door and now she's trapped i mean this woman was not safe in her home so you can imagine when she does go awol from 12 and 12 and sees that he's been there and destroyed it yet again i wouldn't want to be there either it's terrifying i would do anything not to be in that home so anyway, um, right here you can see this is, at, this is the rec room basement um, in Terry Carlton's house where he was shot and killed. Um, the couch in this photo is the couch that he was attempting to drag her to while she was handcuffed. And on the back of that couch they found the Sig Sauer gun. Is it what? Iver Johnson. Iver Johnson. I don't know my guns. But it was an Iver Johnson um, gun that he... So there's this moment that kind of that played at, at trial... It's characterized as he turns, he, he, <coughs> excuse me, he turns away from her and turns back with a mean look. 
and she decides to shoot him. But it's um, been my theory, and I think it's a very plausible theory, that he had a gun went missing, and he wanted to know where it was, right? So he handcuffs her, and he's going to drag her, rape her, and kill her. Um, he's dragging her to the couch, lets go, turns away. I'm pretty sure he remembered there was a gun on the back of that couch and was going to get it. You know? I mean, anyway, rec room. This is, I think, in Italy. Um, that would have been November of 96. They'd been through an on-again, off-again period, but he pretty much um, he started using his uh, sister, Brenda, to pressure April into coming on this trip with him that um, um, was not paid for by him, by the way. It was paid for by um, a local media group that uh, took their biggest ad sponsors on these um, lavish around-the-world trips. So if we're going to talk about Gold Digger, okay, he wasn't paying for this. He was benefiting from his father's businesses buying ads. So, um, but she's in Venice here. And then again here, kind of an intense photo on the, on the far right is um, a photo of the injury to her head that was taken during the SANE exam, um, showing that she, you know, he, she had been beaten pretty badly. Amanda, how old were you when this happened? And what's this whole case trial, what happened to April, what effect has this had on your family? Well, I was seven. I was seven years old when it happened. Um, and my family, when she was sentenced, um, what I've pieced together and can remember was they, f they felt that she was overpunished and it would be hard to fight against the Carltons. Um, and they're, they're very conservative and very religious and I no longer speak with my parents. And the... So I'm trying to piece back together some of what um, maybe my grandmother felt. Um, she, she eventually moved out of the state because I'm sure she felt uncomfortable living here. Um, and sorry, I got really quiet. <laughs> and uh, her son, Hunter, lives in Tulsa. My parents at one point wanted to adopt him. When we were still living in Texas, um, he had, she had um, left or dropped him off with us and um, she was going through a difficult time during that I'm sure but he had a, a well-off father who did end up taking him back and um, there was some tension there between his his father and my th this side of the family so um, I hadn't talked to him um, for almost for, for many years, and I work at Tulsa Community College, and one day he walks in as a student, and I didn't even recognize him, and I had to look at his ID to see it was him. So um, my, my family was kind of cracked before this happened, but it, it did end up really pushing us further apart and over the edge. So um, did that answer the question? Was there anything else about that? I know that when we've talked before, you said that um, there's definitely some different political leanings in your family and uh, religious views. 
how do you think that informed like how your family, certain members of your family processed this trial and you know, her conviction and then also what your family thinks about Tim Harris? Yeah, I think my family was so willing to accept what happened, even though they, they believed she was overpunished because she wasn't being an ideal woman, um, the best mother she could have been, because um, Hunter did end up going back with his father, and he was safe during this time period, um, and she made sure of that, but they were already estranged before the trial, so um, my family also has a belief in the justice system that, you know, she'll eventually get out. Um, like, the word corruption was used here and there when growing up, um, especially in regards to the Tim Harris stuff. Um, but they, they did think it would eventually work itself out, and I even had that belief with attempting to help her with parole. Like, what's the point in contacting so many media outlets? Do you really want your story out there? Because if you get out, it's going to affect your chances of getting a job, maybe. Um, and her jury even gave her life, and that means with the possibility of parole, and there's been nothing she can do to attain parole. So. Um, My, I think my family has started to realize that, like, the system isn't working, but um, they, they do have this belief where it's justice will work itself out. So they didn't question it. Does that answer? Uh, Leslie, you had mentioned earlier something about Don Carlton. Um, well, many people have, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but there's a story just to kind of give you an idea about some of the caliber of people that we're dealing with here. There's a story, uh, it's, you can find it in print, about Don Carlton in a briefcase containing $250,000 inside. Who wants to share what that story is and what the outcome of that was? Happy to. Um, so there's an LA Times piece from 1982, I think, discussing a case um, a federal sting uh, in the upper echelons of Honda, National Honda, because there was a bribery scandal. Um, the, dealers, the dealers who wanted to have dealerships would go to the upper echelons of management and give them money or favors or trips, and they would get in, re in return their dealerships. It was very competitive, very difficult to get, because Hondas were, it, it also bears mentioning that Hondas were like one of the most popular cars during this period of time, and so it was extremely lucrative to have a Honda dealership. So um, Don, after he got his dealership in Tulsa, and he also used to have one in Washington, um, went to Palm Beach and visited one of the um, upper managers of, of Honda Incorporated and brought him a briefcase full of $250,000 as a thank you um, for giving him the dealership. And it was well documented. He did not get prosecuted in this, but the man who, gave, who he gave the money to did. He was convicted. He took a plea um, in federal court. So um, yeah, I think it's, I just think it's, I, there's a lot there. Like how, 
how and when are you like, this is the briefcase I'm going to use, and, and this is the cash, and like, I'm just going to, I'm going to stack it in here this certain way. Like, there's a lot of cognitive processing that goes into getting it, getting it there, getting it to him. He stashed it in his attic. Um, so it's so it's not as if they didn't know that this was illegal. But um, yeah, just a lot of backstory there about about Don. Um, he was in the oil business before he started buying Honda dealerships. He, he was in Ponca City. They were living in Ponca City, and for 20 years he worked at an oil company. So in theory, I guess you could make that much money as an oil man here in Oklahoma and just like pass it to somebody in a briefcase and not think that that was weird. But I do. <laughs> The only thing I want to add to that is that, you know, Terry eventually starts trying to bribe Luke Draffin in April's case. So Luke Draffin is a character in this story who became both a drug supplier to April, but also a source of, like, protection. And Terry didn't like that. It was kind of like one of the only things that would make Terry run off scared was this character, Luke Draffin, who is a bit of a question mark still. We've had a trouble getting a ton of information on him. He died in 2015. No, he died last year. He died last year? Oh, as far as we know, he's dead. But um, <laughs> if, he's, if he's alive, hey, call me, buddy, if you're alive and hearing this. I got questions. Um, but so, like, you know, Terry was willing to bribe to get what he wanted as well. I mean, apple tree. Apple trees. So I know that there is a connection between Don Carlton. We've discussed this before. Um, there's a connection between Don Carlton, who was the father of Terry Carlton, and at the time, Tulsa County DA Tim Harris. Who would like to fill that question and what their connections are? Well, well, Tim Harris, um, the prosecutor, well, Don Carlton donated to his campaign and um, held a banquet, which are very expensive for him to, to get elected. And when I first started helping my aunt with odds and ends, maybe reaching out to this person to see if they're interested in covering her case, and eventually I was scanning in documents. I didn't know what I had. I didn't know all of this legal jargon. I've learned so much listening to the podcast, but um, part of my goal in posting that online to the free April Wilkins blog and promoting it on our social media was to show that um, April's case is a lot similar to other cases that Tim Harris has been attached to, and those cases he prosecuted, such as Michelle Murphy's case, she was a big big case that the Tulsa world like gave the front page to. She was later exonerated. And then Corey Atchison, I believe I'm saying his name right, he was um, another case that he's now exonerated and Dateline did a special. And so I, I was reading these and I'm like, if the Tulsa world is gonna cover Michelle Murphy so fairly and justly, like, and they, they have run a cartoon making fun of Tim Harris I laughed, but <laughs> I, I laughed. I laughed. Yeah, I'll yeah, say it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and April collected these over there, like these articles and this cartoon and these full-page Don Carlton ads. Um, but but April had been collecting them over the years, and she sent them to me. And I mean, I could read them online too. And 
part of my goal was to show like if you really want to to like tear into Tim Harris, why not cover April's case as well? And there's a reason I feel like places like the Tulsa World haven't um, because of those full page ads. Uh, I, I'm doing the math there. Um, but do you want to explain Michelle Murphy's case? So Tim wasn't the lead prosecutor on Michelle's case because it happened in 94, but essentially Michelle was a 17-year-old girl living in an apartment by herself. She had two kids at the time, a 13-month-old baby boy. Um, it's a hard story. Um, she woke up to find her son stabbed to death with his head almost completely severed from his body. Um, she was immediately arrested. Like They processed her charges for first-degree murder the next day. Um, there was a completely horrible police investigation where they didn't even follow up on certain leads. Um, there was a boy who was constantly coming around and looking in her windows who was a disturbed youth. Um, he's the one that made the 911 call. He's the one that sort of like framed her. He ended up dying about six months after the baby by autoerotic asphy asphyxiation. Um, there was a blood pool next to the baby's body that was not the baby's blood type, and it was never tested. It was never introduced at trial. Um, in 2014, the O'Carrolls, Sharice and Richard O'Carroll, they're an attorneys who are married, they took on her post-conviction relief, and they um, basically made a Brady argument that her, you know, that that evidence was withheld. Um, they won that ultimately, but had to go all the way up to the Oklahoma Supreme Court where once, because Tim Harris continued to fight this, even though it was pretty obvious once they got the test results back that it was that boy that killed her son and not her. Um, and she had spent all this time in prison for it. And um, he fought her release. Yeah, so he fought it all the way up. And then when they said, okay, well, let's just deposition you about, what was it? Like, they were going to put on a no, hearing. The, the, there's a Tulsa World article about it where he was being subpoenaed to the Supreme Court to explain his conduct and explain why that, that information was not turned over. And suddenly he was like, <laughs> you can release her. Yeah. He basically then just acquiesced and she was released um, because of, of actual innocence. She's, she's, one of, she's on the list of exonerations. So just like puts a lot of stuff into perspective about you know the finality of the justice system and like that we want to we want to have confidence in the end result so badly that we're willing to just ignore these like heinous errors even if someone could be proven innocent we're like we don't care we want them to stay in prison i mean that's happening right now with tommy ward's case too so it's a, it's a thread i'm going to read a quote um, from a Tulsa World article uh, j from July 21st of 2006. Um, <clears throat> it was talking about Tim Harris's election campaign and it states, Carlton, as in Don Carlton, contributed to Harris's campaign and hosted a reception for him. The Tulsa auto dealer said that he had met Harris eight years ago after Carl Carlton's son, Terry Carlton, was shot to death. Harris and Rebecca Nightingale, a former assistant district attorney who is now a judge, handled the prosecution of April Rose Wilkins, whose battered woman syndrome defense resulted in a life sentence in the murder case. This is a direct quote from Don Carlton. They, the prosecutors, did a spectacular job, and we've been, become personal friends as well as supporters. 
He's just totally dedicated to that job. I'm sure he could go out and make a heck of a lot more money someplace else. That was a quote from Don Carlton about, about Tim Harris. Amanda, um, what has the experience been like in trying to help your aunt with, with her attempts at parole? Well, kind of like what I was saying, like posting her materials was, my, my ultimate goal was to also like get the attention of the parole board or someone who might cover her story um, so that it doesn't happen to anyone else or that this has happened. It's probably happened to others, um, especially with the Tim Harris stuff. But with the parole attempts, it was to um, get her out. And with that, I'm collecting letters from people um, that I don't think the parole board even looked at. Um, they, they were able to like choose from a list of options, right, for why they would deny her a hearing when she had been granted a hearing in the past at least, but she didn't even make it that round um, this year. Um, was there more to that question? Can you tell us a little bit about how that parole hearing attempt went this past year? So it was not successful and we, had a lot of hope that it would be because it was a new parole board that she had never come up before um, because of new parole board members. And we knew in the past that two of the members had been yes votes, but then right before she was gonna come up, the Julius Jones um, case happened and um, they recommended commutation, but then there was blowback and um, a lot of drama and I think harassment is what I would call it of those two of two specific parole board members, Kelly Doyle and Adam Luck, and they were the two yes votes in the past for April. They resigned, and so April came up before a board that was very scared because of the blowback. Um, and so it it affects everyone in prison. This blowback does, and um, it breaks my heart. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we just have a couple of more questions uh, here. And then we have a special treat for you guys, a surprise that we're going to end with. Um, but Amanda, do you feel like your aunt's story, April's story, has been suppressed in any way? Yeah, like I was saying about the Tulsa World stuff and doing the math, um, she's been in for going on 25 years now and you can Google her name and only the recent stuff that has happened because of the podcast comes up. Um, I had to interlibrary loan articles about the Tulsa World coverage and when it first happened, it was very, um, honest, like the bomb squad had to be called into his house because he had hand grenades. Like I, I didn't know that until I read that article. And um, then the, the coverage gets a bit, in my opinion, like more 
like removed from talking negatively about Terry Carlton. So I, I see this pattern and I don't know how much I can say, <laughs> um, but there have been instances where um, somebody was interested in the story and then they drop out because of the Carltons. Is there anything else that I'm missing or that any of the panelists would like to add at this time? I'd like to hear from Molly a little bit about how um, like the field of domestic violence has has changed since April Stroud. I mean, I know you talked about it on the podcast, but just like if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, I mean, the field has changed drastically. Um, so we don't, so I think we talked on the podcast a little bit about battered women's syndrome and um, it's really more of a legal defense than anything that we ever use um, as advocates or social workers. Um, there's just been a lot more research dedication to the topic. So I think we talked um, in the podcast about the psych evaluation that April had. Um, it, that is like, I mean, that doesn't, that shouldn't have ever happened um, or at least shouldn't have come into play for her survivorship um, because so many of the questions around um, like, would you be fearful? Um, do you feel like someone's following you? Um, if you're a domestic violence survivor, you're like, yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, but it's a psych evaluation. So they're like, no, no one's following you. This is schizophrenia. Um, and so just a lot of our understanding of how mental health plays into trauma, but how having a mental health diagnosis is not, does not make you less believed also. Um, I mean, everything's changed basically since the 90s. Um, marital rape was still legal in the 90s in Oklahoma, still kind of is also. Um, but I mean, we've just come a, come a really long way, still a lot further to go. Um, yeah, I don't know if that is what you're, Okay. And what can people do to help April Wilkins now? So, um, as we've talked about some a little bit on the podcast, and we might release some bonus episodes about this, but she's not the only criminalized survivor, of course, in an Oklahoma prison. There are many, many of them. Um, and instead of focusing all of our energy on just helping one person, which is still the right thing to do, um, we would like to help all of them. So the way that you can do that is get involved with Oklahoma Appleseed. We are um, going to be running a bill in the 2023 legislative session that will help domestic violence survivors who are in prison get resentenced for shorter terms and also have a hearing if you're being prosecuted and you have a history of abuse that you can enter that evidence of your abuse in a sentencing hearing and you'll be entered into a lower category of sentencing range. So um, this is something that's been done in New York. It's called the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. Uh, they passed it in 2019. It's been very successful. They've had the Brooklyn Law School come in and do a clinic for these women to help represent them in the resentencing efforts. So a lot of women, not a lot, I would say maybe like a handful so far of women have gotten relief. Um, it's not a perfect solution and it's not a magic bullet. It's not gonna fix everything that happens before we get to the courtroom, which is what we should be also focusing on is the response, right? But it does, I think we've reached a point where we've realized that our, that our law enforcement and judicial response to domestic violence is not working and it's not going to make it go away. 
So let's at least give these people a chance at, at justice now instead of continuing to give them the excuse that you should have left or you should have done something differently and you let it get to this point. Um, we can just go ahead and accept that that's not working, uh, that's not going to work. And in Oklahoma right now, if you're convicted of murder, the only sentencing choices are life or life without parole or potentially death if that gets invoked. So. Um, we heard on the podcast from our juror that we spoke to that, that she was shocked that this kind of a case where there was this much mitigating evidence of abuse only had those two options. Um, in Oklahoma, life is interpreted at 45 years. I mean, and it's an 85% crime. So you're looking at 37.5 years of hard time before you can even earn days towards your parole. Uh, she was luckily sentenced under the pre-law, which she got parole after a third, but still, that's a ridiculous amount of time. She's lost her entire son growing up. Um, she's now missing her granddaughter growing up, and um, it's just not warranted. There's not enough nuance in that kind of a range, and so I encourage you all to support um, our efforts to get this passed. I do feel really um, optimistic about our chances. Um, people in Oklahoma really want to be able to use their guns, so uh, that's kind of what we're thinking about when we're passing this law and um, not encouraging people to use their guns unless they need to. <laughs> Obviously not encouraging vigilante justice, but um, just a little bit of actual justice would be cool. So April Wilkins is aware that we're having this event tonight. And she is beyond grateful that we are having it and that people are willing to listen. And with that, she actually recorded a message for you all from prison. So we're gonna listen to that. To understand what it means to me that people have been listening to the podcast and paying attention and giving such amazing feedback and so supportive and, and have gathered together to come to um, this meeting tonight, you would have to know what it was like to be in here for decades without people caring or feeling like people cared. I know my family did, you know, and, and does. Um, but to see a, a movement of people coming together to support me and other women in here, hundreds of women in here and thousands across the nation, you have to take it in that context of decades feeling like you're locked away and that you're forgotten. And um, as a rule, the public doesn't care or people don't care or they just don't have time or they don't believe you. And um, to have that now, I kind of want to break down, but to have that now is, it's like being able to take a breath of fresh air or coming up from drowning, um, and you're swimming and you're drowning and you, you're going under and you can't come up. And now I finally come up and I'm sucking fresh air and I can breathe again. And, and, um, yeah, it's, and it has, it gives me the kind of hope to inspires me when I say that I see people coming together in this movement to fight for us and uh, that we do matter and that um, people do care and um, after so many years of just, yeah, feeling like you were alone, like it makes my heart smile. And I cannot tell you the, all the hope um, that I see coming alive when we talk about it and when I share this with the ladies that I'm in here with, just to see them smile. 
you know, and to, to have them know that people are coming together. Oh, I wish you could see. I wish you could see their faces and what it means to them. You know, I have a granddaughter, and she's four, and I don't ever, 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 ever want her to go through anything like this. I got to talk to her again on Sunday night. She got on the phone, and she's like, you know, when are they going to let you go? And to have to have these conversations with my four-year-old granddaughter and and to know that my son went through, you know, the same questions. Like, our children shouldn't have to go through that. And people are coming together now to do something for that. You know, for all the mothers, 80, 85% of us in here that are mothers separated from our children, it's not just affecting me. It's not just affecting, you know, um, the other women in here with me. It's affecting our children and our families. And um, this is so far-reaching what everybody's doing. So I cannot say thank you enough. I cannot say how much I appreciate you guys. I cannot say that a million times. I cannot say it enough, what it means. And know that it means that to the women here with me because we are all following this very closely and so eager. So, yeah, you guys are rare and special. I will say it again that these injustices are so common. They happen every day. Injustices happen every day and all the time in this world and I see the fallout here in prison but people coming together rare and special right and so that is the big story that's the huge story thank you we're now going to open up the floor for any audience questions <laughs> then ask your question ask, Paula, ask don't one be shy. or two okay <laughs> My first question was, did the impact of the drug use have anything to do with why she didn't get off, do you think? The, the, the fact that she had, or they had appeared to have had the drug problems? Yeah, I mean, this was, honestly, during voir dire, Tim asks the jurors if they know what methamphetamine is because it was such a new phenomenon at the time. Like, people knew there were like a lot of people getting hooked on this weird street drug, but now it's like a commonplace word that we all know. It's a huge epidemic in Oklahoma, and this is like when it just started taking root. And I really think they capitalized on that narrative of like dirty tweakers um, to other her and to make it look like that's why she did this, right? Like that, they, they follow her from leaving 12 and 12 all the way to the hotel and they follow the rollerblading. And I think that the picture that they're trying to paint, even though I don't think they did a very good job, either side really did a very good job of explaining it, but the picture that the state is trying to paint is look at this crazy tweaker and what all the stuff she's doing tonight. And like, that's why she did what she did because she was high on drugs and drugs are bad and stop doing drugs, kids. So just say no to drugs. And so, it was a jury of mostly teachers and housewives and a couple of men who were professional men. And in 1999, you're hearing about meth. You're thinking, I don't want that to happen to my kids. I don't want my kids to get hooked on meth. This is really bad. And it just sort of set them on this path of like, this could never happen to me because I'm not a tweaker, right? And I would say 
survivors know. So like they know that perception. So if you're a survivor who is also a substance user, you know that that is going to make you less believed. So I would not be shocked if April was like, yeah. And that's also like why it's difficult to call the police because when the police show up and you're using drugs, um, they do not believe you. And as advocates, um, not only does it like not commit, like that's just not part of an assessment of a survivor, like if they are a survivor, you know, um, so, so much so that like whenever I meet with survivors who are also substance users, I'm like, hell yeah, that's like more proof, right? That you are a survivor because people find ways to cope and it's not always healthy ways to cope, but using drugs is a very common way to cope with what you're going through. Um, I mean, on top of like abusers also using that. So abusers introducing that to survivors so that they are hooked on the abuser themselves and also knowing that they won't be believed. And then there's also the, like, I mean, it just all goes into play, but I was once put on the stand and the, um, the abuser's lawyer said, well, didn't you read, didn't you read the records of when she was at Laureate? Well, didn't you see that she's been using these drugs? And I was like, no. And he was like, doesn't that matter? I said, no. And thankfully we had a judge who was like, um, Molly, do you want to explain power and control? And I was just like, oh my God, yes. I'd love to explain the power and control to this guy. But, but it's such a common, like that's very rare to have a judge who, mm -hmm. who understands that. He just happened to have been through a lot of training. I want the judge's name offline. Just to... I, I would recommend him. Uh, well, uh, I wanted to add to one thing that you mentioned about like the calling the police and them not believing you. I just like to reiterate in April's case, of course, there's Officer Aaron Tallman who has April committed, right? Because she is fleeing Terry yet again. He's been out on DV calls to her house. He knows the history, but he also knows she's a drug user and he finds paraphernalia on her that day. And he, in his testimony, perhaps he believes this tr truly too, believes he did a benevolent thing by having her committed. Um, he could have charged her with a paraphernalia charge and he chose instead to call Patty Wagon and have her hauled off for three and a half weeks where she was committed. So I don't know, it just, it. it um, in this case, I think it was a big part of, of the finding of guilt. We're also on the cusp of trauma-informed, like trauma-informed services, trauma-informed care. Trauma create, trauma, understanding of trauma, both in the brain and the body, really did not come into the national consciousness until the early 2000s, and even then it was like early. Uh, we've really developed like a lot of, a lot of research around trauma. And unfortunately, this happened in 1999 when that didn't exist yet. Like, we just thought, she's acting crazy. She must be crazy. Like, there wasn't really any assessment of, like, the underlying why someone would act that way. It was just put onto the person. You're exhibiting these behaviors. This is what's wrong with you. You must have something wrong with you. And trauma-informed care in Oklahoma basically, like, five years ago is when stuff started being talked about. So... Like we are, and it is not a part of training for police officers yet. Um, they've heard the words um, and may say that they are trauma informed, but there's like just it. It is so new in Oklahoma. The other question I had was: It seemed like 
Questions around, like, why don't people leave when we think they should leave? Why don't they see the red flags? I mean, um, I would love for us to just, like, never use those phrases again, right? Because we are not living the experience, right? So we see, like, okay, this guy, we see a pattern of abuse. We see he's been, like, with someone else. We see he started, I know there's kids, um, like, started physically abusing her pretty quickly. But what's important to recognize is that she also loved him and that there were also a lot of good times. So when you are living with abuse, that does not mean you are living with abuse every moment of the day, right? It also means that you most likely, yeah, like you often love that person mm -hmm. and you want that when you love someone, you want them to do better. And you also think, okay, often you think, okay, I love them, they love me. Maybe this is something I can help them with. And so there are a lot of reasons people stay, but one I think that gets lost is we paint people as just like black and white, good and evil, and that's not who survivors are and that's not who abusers are either. So um, I'm sure they had many great times. Also, even if there weren't great times, there's so much happening behind the scenes around like threats. She had children. Child <laughs> she had a child, child right? Mm -hmm. So like threats to your kids, threats to I'm going to sh show up to your job every day if you don't stay with me. I mean, there's all these ways that will that abusers can use to manipulate the survivor's life that hold people like that imprison people right within those relationships on top of all of the other stuff we talked mm -hmm. about around like not believing that you're a survivor not knowing if it's bad enough, loving someone. I mean, these are so complex as human relationships are, but we always just kind of paint it as, well, now in hindsight, mm -hmm. she should have left at this moment, but. Yeah, I think if I look at it in hindsight now, I can see his patterns being incredibly intentional right around the times when she starts to pull away. And one of the times when she had separated from him and was changing her number and you know all of those things and like I'm done with this was when he started introducing intravenous meth and she got and she was kidnapped in his house for three days and they took meth together for three days. That's just about long enough to get somebody hooked on meth. And so it's like as she starts to pull away, the tact this is post separation abuse, which is a whole other thing, but the tactics become more um, drastic and more um, scary and abusive and so I do think she had she was formulating a plan always formulating a plan to try to get away there was talk about her trying to move to Hawaii there was talk about her but there was Hunter and she didn't want to leave Hunter she didn't her, Hunter's dad was here you know you can't just leave when you have a kid and so there's just yeah like Molly said it's a lot and 
I know two people in my life that could have ended up where April is. Uh, there was a tiny little microcosm of a change in their life that allowed them to get away before something like this happened. But there are so many women that could have ended up where April is if something had gone a little bit differently. And so, I don't know. It's just, yeah. Are there any more questions? Uh, no, it's okay. You go first. Um, <laughs> No. Um, <laughs> so, like, I think it's really easy. We've talked. We talk on the podcast about like armchair quarterbacking, and like, you know, we get the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of like, twenty-five years later. However, there are there's a lot of times in that trial where it's clear that her attorney himself didn't have a good grasp of what April went through, um, or even a good grasp of the defense he was trying to put on. And you can see that reflected in his choice of expert. Um, if you listen to episode 10, right before we get to Molly's episode, which is my favorite, episode 11. Um, but in episode 10, I mean, we go into, the, into detail about the choice of expert. And, you know, I think it speaks for itself what he testified to. He testified she was unreasonable, she was stupid, she was psychotic. None of those things bolster or support or prove a defensive battered women's syndrome. So, he, like, her own expert was actively working against her and that was a, I mean, that was a choice her attorney made. Not a choice necessarily to have a bat, like an expert that was working against her. I don't think that that's necessarily what he set out to do. But the, the result is horrific, right? So I just think that like, not having a full grasp of the case and it is complex. Um, it's taken us a long time and in fact, we're still discovering new details here and there. But um, he, didn't, he didn't get it and his expert didn't get it. I, I will just say, and I'm not one to leap to to Chris's defense every time, but I was just reading the case file, the court file the other day, and he he entered the case in the summer of 2000, of, sorry, summer of 1998, so like a couple of months after the shooting, he enters the case, gets hired by April's family. The trial was set for December of the same year. To have a murder trial like this in within the first eight months, I mean, Lacey, you know, like, that's crazy. Um, and he had to fight tooth and nail to get a continuance on the murder trial to, to push it off. And the reason that he used was because he didn't have his expert picked yet. And he wasn't able, and he had just hired an expert named Judith Adams, and she wasn't up to speed on the case yet. It was going to take a couple of months to do all of this research and, and figure out what her opi expert opinion was going to be. So that is the reason he was granted a continuance. He was not going to get another continuance. That's right. That's right. And he, fought, he fought hard for it and didn't get it. Right. And so they set it for April of 1999, and it was like, this is going whether you're ready or not, basically, was the, the way the court handled that. And so Judith, for whatever reason, we could not figure it, we haven't been able to figure out, dropped out of the case, wasn't able to do it, and he found Dr. Call within like six weeks before the trial. And you know, um, that's not good. That's not a good thing. You're not gonna be ready. You're not gonna know what's happening. You're probably not the right person if you're taking a case that's that fast. So there's a lot there about like the, the process and why are we rushing this and like what, 
like, I know everybody's got schedules and we want to meet our schedules, but like, this is someone's life. Like, can we not just do it right? You know what I mean? And I think it speaks to just how overburdened courts are and, and attorneys in general. And yeah, so it's, it's a lot of layers there, but generally, yeah, I just, I just wish he had never put on Dr. Call. continue to advocate with OU School of Social Work? Okay, yeah. Um, I think that it continue in education. So like there will be places that will put on continuing education workshops on domestic violence. Um, I think it, I, again, I think it needs to be like in our curriculum. So not just for us, for psychologists. So like we talked about Dr. Call may not have had, you don't have to have training in domestic violence to be a psychologist, to be a social worker. Um, to be it, a lawyer. To be, yeah, to be anything. But you can be called to be an expert witness on it without training. Um, so I think, yeah, because every, t every social worker, every psychologist is gonna end up working with survivors, no matter what field you're in. Um, so I would, honestly, there are great resources, but finding like, workshops and presentations that are happening in your community because domestic violence also looks different you know in each community and different barriers for every community um, but again advocating for our curriculum to actually include it <laughs> I know you guys brought up the um, the purple bible I guess and that that's a, can I can, how am I going to hold that so that is Oklahoma City. They have done a fantastic job, but the YWCA in Oklahoma City it hands those out. Yeah, I can get you connected to those. Yeah. yeah. In the back. Abby, it's good to see you. <laughs> um, and I love that question because, um, you know, it's been a frustration for all of us at this table um, that have looked at this case and worked on this case and tried to get it in front of the news. Uh, my, I think my opinion is fortune favors the bold, baby. So we just need people to be bold. I mean, stand up. You have to, I mean, you just have to stand, you have to stand up to these people. Someone has to. You want to wield your money over me? I don't know. I don't have to deal with that, so maybe it's easier said than done. But I would love to see more people feel empowered to do so. I think you're speaking about two separate things. There's the culture of victims not being able to speak out, and then there's the culture of local media being beholden to large ad spenders. So the first one, um, there's a lot that we can do as a community to support survivors and victims when they come out and speak about their truth. First being not to sue them for defamation. Um, letting the truth come out in a normal court process, if that's the process that the survivor wants to take, letting that happen instead of stepping in and trying to insert ourselves and say, that didn't happen that way, that's not what happened. You know, trying, like, there's a culture of disbelief 
that starts from the moment someone starts speaking out and it's used to manipulate the narrative, if we would all just like, just let's just de facto say, yeah, that person was abused. Um, and if I have doubts about it, testify in court, like go to the authorities with your doubts, but don't like publicly doubt someone because that creates this culture where people are afraid to tell what happened or afraid to come out. And we just saw that in a recent case here in Tulsa where there were many, many, many victims of this one person and you're thinking, how does something like this happen where every single one of those people don't feel comfortable telling what happened to them? And it's like, it's this culture of silencing and people being afraid and, you know, like maybe rightfully so being afraid. Only thing I want to add, other than that my first comment was directed at the advertising issue, but um, my second comment is for, for the, from the victim perspective or from the person who's been abused survivor perspective, there's like a startling statistic, Molly, you'll probably know better than I do, of like 40% of law enforcement officers have been involved in a domestic, is it higher than 40%? So these are the people responding to these calls. And there's a very high percentage of them who themselves are involved in these kinds of incidents. So uh, for me, I can't get away from that, that we have to maybe start there in some way. And I think like around like speaking out, um, so for survivors, like if you look at a few different uh, somewhat, power somewhat powerful people in Tulsa, um, I won't give them that much credit, but who have used their power to silence their victims or their survivors, um, what we need is we need to not put the onus on the survivors to be the ones who are calling out the abuser, right? That's not really on them. <laughs> um, I mean, I've heard people be like, but if you don't do it, then they're gonna hurt someone else. And it's like, that's not the survivor's responsibility. Like that's the person who's doing the harm. Um, but we need people with the similar power. We need their peers to be holding them accountable. So it is not up to survivors. It is not up to people with lesser power to hold them accountable. It is up to peers to hold them accountable, to cut them out of spaces. Um, because again, it's just like the responsibility needs to be back on people who hold that power. Any more questions? Yeah. Um, with this podcast, as well as a lot of true crime podcasts, probably all of them, a lot of their retelling relies on local media. So as a group of people who kind of deep dive into a local crime story and how the local media has covered it, what are things that you see that they got right and what are things that you see that maybe they got horribly wrong and how can they move forward so this doesn't happen again? That's a long one. <laughs> I'll just say really quickly, like Amanda said earlier, the early coverage of the from the Tulsa world on this case was really pretty good. Um, the trial coverage is really weird. Uh, I don't know what's going on there, but I did. I do have a, a remark that would not make it into court because it's hearsay, but I have heard that Bill Braun, who was the main reporter uh, for the Tulsa world on this case, and Tim Harris and Don Carlton would go out um, after every day of trial and discuss um, what the reporting was going to be. Um, so I, I, I mean, I think objectivity, right? Like, <laughs> that would be my main thing is like journalistic standards of if you're going to cover one side of something, you, you get 
someone from the other side of it speaking on it as well. Um, but like the really thing about this case is the startling lack of coverage really um, on something so high profile as this. It's just, yeah, it's just odd. Um, that's what I would say. I mean, you all had the transcripts too, and you all are awesome attorneys, and I don't think a lot of podcasts are going to have attorneys um, who know how to interpret those transcripts. Like, I've skimmed them, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm reading sometimes. But uh, I, I think that, like, having April's documents, like her court documents, um, I have those in my garage right now. They're all scanned and backed up in case something happens to them. And so those, those primary documents were essential, I think. Yeah, I would just I was just going to add that the the main source of material for this podcast wasn't really local media. It was the transcripts of the trial and and the exhibits that were entered in that trial. Yeah, and I just want to give props to Amanda because when people approach me about projects like this, um my first instinct is to always say no because it's so labor intensive to try to gather everything and find all of this and do all the investigation. And because Amanda has done all of that, she's linked everything on the blog. She's got a per her and April together have built this timeline that is like all backed up and documented. And it made our jobs, honestly, like we did additional investigation and, and other things um, that we could do as attorneys, but it made it so much easier for us to just like say, okay, well, a lot of the work's already been done. So. Um, that's how we were able to get it going so quickly, too, is because most of the time, like, we would have had to research this for, like, a year before right. we could get it up and going, but because everything was already there, it made it a lot faster. Yeah, a huge props to Amanda, and if there are advocates in the audience or are listening to this later on when we post it online, like, if you're looking for legal help, if you're trying to get somebody to, if you're waving your arms and trying to get somebody to pay attention to you, I'll just say that, like, that kind of work made a difference in this case. Truly, I mean, uh, we, Amanda, when I had a question about a, you know, putting everything in chronological order on that timeline was like super helpful going back to place these events because it is so detailed and it is so um, spindly that it was necessary to have that. One more question. Yeah. There are a couple of avenues for legal relief in this situation. They're, they're, all of them together are called post-conviction relief. But So parole is one option. That is basically supervised release where you go report to the parole officer. Um, someone who's on a life sentence would be on the lifetime of parole if they get out. Um, so that's fees, fines, everything you have to do. But Violent parole, what we call violent parole, which is the, the crimes that you would think of as violent, and then some more in Oklahoma are classified as violent. It's almost impossible to receive a violent parole. It's a, it's a three-stage process. You get a jacket review like Amanda was talking about. They can approve you for a hearing. Then if you get a hearing, which is a very minute percentage of them, you um, go before a board of five. You have to get a majority vote, and then that has to go to the governor for approval. That's just in a parole situation. Then you also have commutation, which is a sentencing reduction. So it's the same type of process. You get a jacket review by the parole board. If they pass you past stage one, you go to a hearing, same thing. They vote 
So they look very similar, but they're different. A, a commutation operates to reduce your sentence. Sometimes it will, you would still stay in for a little bit depending on how long they would reduce it to. Some people get reduced to time served. And then that also goes to the governor for review. So these are all very like labor-intensive processes. Um, for her to discharge her, she can't discharge her sentence because it's a life sentence. If it was a term of years, like 45, for example, she could discharge that off of just running her days. But since it's life, it it's, runs for your natural life unless you get out. Um, there is a statutory process that goes back to the sentencing court called post-conviction relief. There's a fly in here. Um, it's called post-conviction relief, and you can apply um, under very limited circumstances if you discover new evidence or if you, there was a constitutional violation that gets recently um, uncovered. You can apply. That goes back to the same court where you came out of, and it's very difficult to get, especially in Oklahoma. Um, and if you've ever appealed on an option on any type of grounds, those cannot be considered for post-conviction relief because they've already been disposed of, so to speak. So it's very difficult. Uh, but there are, you know, there are some options. Oh, legislation. That's the fourth one. So if you pass a resentencing bill, um, everybody who would fall under that category would be able to go under this new procedure to get resentenced. So there's that, too. I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight and uh, remind people that Center for Public Secrets, we are one of the, I'd say, few places here in Tulsa where we do truly get to speak freely about the topics, topics that we care about without having to consider who is financially contributing to us. With that, yeah. with that, we do heavily rely on donations <laughs> from people like you. So if you enjoyed what you saw tonight and wanna to continue supporting a space that supports people like these, please buy some of our merch or go buy a beer. Thank you. Yeah.